For the past four weeks, we have been studying the theme of battle for belief. It is our goal, it is our purpose to try to be able to make Christians of all men. We are commanded by our Lord to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. We have also emphasized as we have studied this in our introductory lesson that it is a charge of our Lord that we go out and we try to battle for the minds of men. And that is extremely important that we understand where a person is at in their level of understanding. We talked about God is. The fact that the evidence is that there is a God in heaven, that he created this world of which you and I are a part. We also have talked about how evolution is false and creation is true, and we presented the evidence last Sunday evening for that. Tonight, what I would like for us to do is to shine the light on inspiration. What about the Bible? What about that book? As we begin, there's no doubt that we are at war with the devil. I just want to present to you a few passages of Scripture in which the Lord, or excuse me, Paul, speaks to Timothy and tells him the role that he has. He said in chapter 1, verses, verse 18, he said, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. This is a war. You get to chapter 6 and verse 12, and he says, Fight the good fight of faith. But it wasn't just the book of 1 Timothy. When you go to 2 Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Yet when we go even further to the writings of Peter in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're at war with the devil. We're trying to get people to believe God, to trust God. Satan is trying to get people not to believe God, but to follow their own sinful wishes and desires. The key to our warfare, though, is both our armament and our weaponry. We go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Notice carefully verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The battle that we are waging is not a physical, fleshly one. The battle that we wage is one that is mental and spiritual. As we have observed in each of our lessons beginning 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity for the obedience of Christ. So tonight what we want to do is to talk about inspiration. Many books claim inspiration. For instance, I have here on the pulpit a copy of the Quran. The Quran claims to be a message of God through the prophet Muhammad. And yet this book here does not exhibit the evidence of being inspired of God. There's another book I have here on the pulpit. It's called The Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. I actually have a whole list in the front of this book of contradictions, errors, mistakes that are made in this book. It too does not represent a book that would be from God. And then we have the Bible. Is this book from God? Now, when you approach this subject, you have to realize that many people mean different things when they use the word inspired. So what I want us to do tonight is three things. I want to begin with a clarification. What does it mean to say that a book is inspired of God? Or as Brother Mike read for us just a few moments ago from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Number two, I want to look at a confirmation. What is it that I can find in the Bible that confirms for me that this is a book from God? It's not a book from man. And then number three, to look at just very briefly this way that God communicated to man and what man has tried to do against it. What does the word inspired mean? Several years ago, I read a book, an excellent book, written by Norman Geisler and Nix. The title of it is called A General Introduction to the Bible. And one of the things that these two gentlemen do is to take all of the views that are given in society with regards to the inspiration of the Bible. And what they do, they categorize it under three different broad headings. The first one is the liberal view of the Bible. And to them, they say the Bible contains the Word of God. Not that it is the Word of God, that it contains the Word of God. Then they discuss there's a group of people who followed them, and the liberals really actually began the late, early to late 1700s, part of the German rationalism. They sometimes hear them called modernist. And it continues even to today. But there were a lot of people who reacted against that. And they call themselves neo-orthodox or the new orthodoxy. And they say the Bible becomes the word of God. And we'll have to discuss that for just a second or two. And then there is the conservative, which is the correct view, that the Bible is the word of God. Now, let's explore these three about the way people approach the Bible. The liberal begins by saying God allowed certain people throughout the history to be able to discover wisdom. 
They would say people like perhaps Job. Let's use him for an example. Here's Job, and he lived in a period of time in which people blamed God for a lot of things. And Job understood that you can't blame God for everything. And through the events that he suffered and the society in which he lived, he came out with some really good, wise precepts. And in those contains the words of God because Job figured out what was important in this life. They use the word inspired in the same sense as Shakespeare is said to be inspired. The fact that, oh, he has such a great, powerful message in it. There's some great lessons in it. And you might say, well, where would a person go to get this kind? You could go, for instance, to Vanderbilt to go to their school of theology. And you would be taught this view of the inspiration of the Bible. I emphasize they see no divine element in the Bible. That is, they don't see the hand of God on the pages of Scripture. They simply see it as people having great insight, and they say that contains the Word of God. The neo-Orthodox view comes along after it, and it says the Bible becomes the Word of God when you strip out all of the myths and all the errors and all the problems that are in it, then it becomes the Word of God. And what they will do, they will go through and they'll actually say, well, this is not a part of God's Word. This is not a part of God's Word. And then you say, well, what kind of things do they consider myths? Creation? The virgin birth? Resurrection? Any of the miracles that's in the Word of God? They would say, oh, those didn't happen. That you have to understand that's just the way they put it in their language. And so they say the Bible just becomes the Word of God. And so it is only after you're able to strip out all of those myths, all of those errors, that you then have distilled the Word of God. And I will tell you they also freely reject any part with which they disagree attributing that to the views of fallible man. For instance, all those passages which speak about homosexuality, they would say that just represents the feelings of those people in that period of time in which they lived. But we recognize there's a third view, and that is the Bible is the Word of God, that it is complete, that is we're not lacking anything. It is inerrant, that it does not make mistakes, and that it is authoritative. That means if it is from God and it is written to me, then I must accept it and do what it says. Let me give you the passage again, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is very important. Literally, it means God breathed. The words of Scripture are essentially the words that come out of God's mouth. Yes, Paul might be the man who actually wrote it down, but it comes not from Paul, but from God. What else does the Bible say? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. Paul is talking about the miraculous gifts, particularly he's talked about the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues. And he says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you, 
They are the commandments of the Lord. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, he said, if you think you're a prophet, if you think you're spiritual, you have to recognize that the things I'm writing are not from me. They're commandments from the Lord. Peter would say it this way in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Verse 21, For prophecy never came by will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved there is a real interesting word. It literally means to be carried along. These people were given the message of God and they spoke it. That's what the Bible claims to be. If the Bible claims to be the very words of God, the very commandments of God, to be superintended by God, and you say that it's got errors in it, then it is not a book to be trusted. I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 10, going through verse 13. We're really just going to have to pull out parts of it from the American Standard reading, and I like the way the American Standard translates this. He says, but unto us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For who among a man knows the things of man, save the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God, save the Spirit of God. You understand what he's saying is God has somehow revealed them to us through his spirit. We wouldn't know what's in God's mind unless God revealed it. Just like no one knows what's in your mind unless you reveal it. Then verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the spirit teaches. Combining spiritual things with spiritual words. What is Paul saying? That's the way God communicated it. He gave his mind to the mind of someone like Paul, even superintending him to the point where the words that he chose, combining spiritual things with spiritual words. Now let's step back and say, okay, I understand what you're meaning by inspiration now. You're saying that the Bible is the very Word of God. Not that it becomes it, not that it contains it, that it is the Word of God. Well, does God want me to investigate? Well, sure He does. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, Test all things, hold fast what is good. Have I read this book here to check and see if it represented the truth? I have. I don't believe it does. The Book of Mormon does not represent God's Word. Have I read, not all, but at least a good portion of the Quran? I have. It too does not represent. It has contradictions in it. So if I test all things and I find things that are not as they should be, then I've got to reject them. We read in 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's still a lot of people who are claiming to speak from God. Test them and see. There are four major proofs that are listed with regards to the inspiration of the Bible. These are not the only ones. You can have others 
And uh, we could talk about those others, but time only permits me to take a certain portion and discuss them in this period of time we have allotted for this sermon. The first one is going to be predictive prophecy. The second one will be the unity of Scripture. The third will be its harmony with, consistency with archaeology. And then the fourth will be this scientific foreknowledge. And we want to take those things and see as we look at the Bible and we look and see, is this a book that is from God and it exhibits these characteristics? Does that mean that the Bible is the Word of God? Let's look at predictive prophecy. When I go to the Bible, prophecy is not a mere educated guess. An educated guess would mean you have a good chance that you are going to be right because you have weighed everything. For instance, what if six months ago I had said Barack Obama is going to be reelected the president with about 51% of the vote? You may would have disagreed with me. You may would have said, no, that's not going to happen. But if I had made that prophecy, I would have been true. But that would have been an educated guess. That would have been looking at all the circumstances that might would have happened and have made an educated guess. That's not what you have in the Bible. I will tell you that the Bible says, make sure that you look at predictive prophecy as a proof that this is from God. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, he says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? The latter part of verse 21 is the key element here. How do I know? Can I be sure that the Quran, can I be sure that the Book of Mormon is not from God? Well, yes, I can be sure. Because verse 22 says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. This book right here says that the temple of the Lord will be built on Temple Lot in Independence, Missouri in the lifetime of that generation. You know what? Never was. Still hasn't been. What does that tell me according to Deuteronomy chapter 18? No need to trust him. No need to worry about him. God's not spoken by Joseph Smith. Yet when I go to the Bible, there are over 330 prophecies with regards to Christ alone. 330. I want you to listen to Jesus in John chapter 5 and verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You go to the Bible because you want to find eternal life there. Good idea. But when you get there, they're the things that testify of me. If the critics of Jesus had one prophecy that he didn't fulfill, do you think they would have let it pass? Not at all. 
me give you a couple of examples of predictive prophecy in the Bible. These are not, by any means, the only ones. There's so many. I just want to give you a couple of examples. If you go to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1, Isaiah is looking forward to the coming of a man who is going to release the children of Israel from their Babylonian captivity. When Isaiah writes this, Babylon is not even in power, not the dominant power at least. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus was named by Isaiah over a hundred years before he came to power. You're talking about predictive prophecy. There is predictive prophecy. I could not skip one of the most important ones in the Old Testament. With regards to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. God told Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ahaz says, don't want one. Well, he says, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, just exactly as the Old Testament had prophesied. Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies. Second of all is the unity of the Bible. Now, if a person were to take everything that I have written over my meager lifetime and were to begin to compare it and say, you know what, I think you said stuff different 25 years ago than you say it today. I have no doubt somebody would find a contradiction in something I have said. But there's no contradictions in the Bible in spite of being written by 40 men over a 14 to 1500 year time span. That's simply remarkable. And then when you look at the background of those men who wrote the Bible for the Lord, you have such diverse people as Moses being a political leader, as Peter being a fisherman, Amos being a tender of sycamore trees and a herdsman, and Luke, a doctor, Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, Nehemiah, a cupbearer, and I could go on and on and on. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And what you come to the conclusion is, there's only one plausible conclusion that I can draw is, this book is from one source. And that one source is accurate and true and full and complete every time. That's the only possible explanation. Now consistent with archaeology, and some of you may not appreciate archaeology that much, I love the study of archaeology. In fact, I subscribe to Biblical Archaeology Review and another one called Bible and Spade. I love reading every article that comes out. I will tell you, there are some people who write in there who are not what they ought to be. They don't believe the truth completely. But one of the things I have observed is that the critics of the Bible have failed miserably. 
Let me tell you how they reason. They say we look at the evidence and if I don't see that David did this in the city of Jerusalem, then David didn't see do it. If I haven't dug up something that has revealed that David was, for instance, a king in Hebron, if I can't find it, then it didn't happen. And the critics of the Bible have come forth and they said, well, you can't believe the Bible because it says this and we can't find any proof for it. But you know what has happened time and time and time again? For instance, it was charged that in Joshua chapter 3 and verse 10 where the mention of the Hittites is included with the other Canaanites. They said, well, we can't find them. They didn't exist. But they were found in that area of eastern Turkey, right near the Syrian border by A.H. Sasi. They were found to be a people who had a sloped forehead and a big nose. And then the critics come along and said, that the Assyrian king by the name of Sargon, we, we, we can't find him, we can't, we, we've never found any record of him, and so the Bible just made him up. Emil Bota discovered the remains of the palace of Sargon and all of the remains of his kingdom at Khorsabad in Iraq. You want me to tell you what happens to the critics of the Bible? They have been wrong time after time after time. But you know what has not happened? There's not been one discovery that's in the Bible that a critic can say, well, now the Bible says this, and here we've got proof that it's wrong. Not once. Number three, or number four, is scientific foreknowledge. Now, the Bible is not a textbook on science. We don't need to be using it as that. That's what, what it was intended for. But if this book of the Bible is from God, we would expect this Bible to tell the truth even when people around about them thought something differently. And I can give you a couple of illustrations of this. Life is in the blood. Throughout history, some of the medical profession has thought that bleeding people was a good idea. And yet, when I go to the Bible, I read Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You get down to verse 14, For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to you, the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it will be cut off. He said the life is in the blood. That blood sustains life. We know that to be a fact now. There was a time in which people believed the earth was flat. In fact, there were people when they were trying to sail to the New World from Europe believed that they would sail to a certain point and then they'd just drop off the end. The Bible didn't hold that view. Isaiah 40, verse 22, He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. 
Or Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over the empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. We're suspended in space. How could people know things like this except for the fact that God knew it in advance? What about the paths of the sea? Sometimes you think people just get on the ocean and it's just water there. But you know there's currents, there's paths in the sea. Psalm 8, verse 8, The birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Isaiah 43, 16, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path through the mighty waters. Now what conclusion must I come up with? The Bible exhibits so many characteristics that it's confirmed. Now, many people have thought that they could somehow destroy this communication of God from man. Um, one great atheist, Voltaire, who said that the Bible was written by 12 ignorant men and that he himself would destroy it in a generation. Well, Voltaire has come and gone and that's not taking place. 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. You get worried sometimes that the society in which we live in is somehow going to destroy the Bible. They may work against it, but they cannot, will not destroy it. The Roman emperors, Decius and Diocletian, tried to make it a crime to own the Bible. They confiscated the Bibles, the copies of the Bible from people. And then they piled them up and burned them in a, a show of strength. Look, we're going to stop out, stamp out this Christianity and we're going to stamp out this book that you keep following. The Roman Empire has fallen and God's Word remains. The Catholic Church, in a period of its existence tried to persecute anybody who would take the Bible and translate it into a language that someone else could study. Whether you're talking about Wycliffe or Tyndale, both of them were persecuted for translating the Bible into the English language. The Bible has withstood every attempt to try to destroy it. With all of that together, what do I conclude? If the Bible is the Word of God, then what must I do to it or with it? John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my word has one who judges him. These words I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. I understand that this is a message from God. I'm going to be judged by it. I'm going to be held accountable to it. John 6 and verse 63, when Jesus preached a sermon about the bread of life, he said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are Spirit and they are life. I have to look at God's Word as being a life-giving message. And then a kicker passage, one that just really grabs you. James chapter 1 and verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness, an overflow of wickedness. 
and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You know, we're really at the point now where we, we brought it all together about the Bible. This book is able to save your soul. What you've got to do is you've got to learn it from it, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You've got to learn that you've got sin in your life, and you've got to repent of that sin. You've got to confess your faith in Christ and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you'll follow that, it'll save your soul. Have you obeyed its teachings? We want to encourage you tonight that if you've not yet obeyed the gospel, or if you're one of God's children and you need the prayers of the congregation to God on your behalf, we invite you to respond as together we stand and say.